On the Empire Podcast this week, we're still soaking up the sun, but mostly rain as the Cannes Film Festival draws to a close. We talk to Alec Baldwin, Nicholas Winding Refn, and Kristen Scott Thomas, and our team in London tackle the week's big releases. How's that for a slice of... I don't know what. Uh, bonjour le pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that reckons Steven Spielberg is going to need a bigger boat. I'm joined this week by my colleagues in Cannes, Mr. Damon Wise. It's a bit worse, Damo, Damo. Ooh. And Cannes Virgin, Ali Plum. Hello. And we're also joined by special guest pundit, first time we've ever done this, the brilliant Stevie Wong, a journalist for Asia Outlets. Is that vague enough for you, Stevie? Ni hao, bitches. How's that? <laughs> Would that help? Is that, is that good? You're off to a cracking start. You can expect more like that over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, as ever, we're going to tackle questions from you guys first before we get into the meat of the festival. Uh, so, at JPW Tweet asks, Would so many film critics walk out of films they were unhappy with in a normal cinema, or is it just a can thing? Now, I haven't seen many walkouts. I've actually seen more films this can than I usually do when I'm doing video blog episodes, but I haven't seen any walkouts. Damo, what do you, what do you stand? No, they don't, they don't tend to be walkouts, because when a film is especially hated, um, there is usually um, a desire to, 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 to find the dog at the festival to, to and kick it to death. So, so they do tend to stay to the end, just so they have more ammunition. But um, it, it's hard. What do you think, Stevie? I, I don't, you don't see it very often. Actually, all the movies that I've seen this year, I haven't had any experiences of walkouts. I thought there would be more during the uh, Only God Forgives, and I was surprised that there weren't. Well, I think the scheduling has, been, has a lot to do with it. If there's something else to go to, people will get up and go to that. But I think the, the films have been staggered a bit right. more carefully this time, so that a lot of people are staying put because there isn't anywhere else to go. I did lead a walkout, though. Uh, I, I, I stood, <laughs> I was waiting because I could not watch As I Lay Dying. I really was there, and I was trying really hard. I must have been really tired. This is the James Franco movie. The James Franco okay. film. And uh, there's a lot of hillbilly talk going on, and I was just like, the second the father was like, I can't wait for her to die so I can sell her teeth. I was like, okay, enough. Yes. <laughs> enough. I'm sorry. And so I stood up and then immediately <laughs> afterwards, four other people joined me. So I <laughs> led a bit of a, uh, a revolution, if you want. I, I met a journalist on my way to interview Jerry Weintraub the other day uh, up at the Hotel de Cap, who said he'd walked out of an interview to go to get, because we had a car that took us from the Majestic Hotel, which is on the uh, uh, on the on the on the beachfront here in the, in in Cannes, and the Hotel de Cap is a forty five minute drive away. So they put on a car to take three journalists up. One guy was going to interview Soderbergh. One guy was going to interview Michael Douglas. I was going to interview Jerry Weintraub, the legendary producer. And we all got in the car, and he was going, "Yeah, basically to make this car, I had to walk out in the middle of an interview with Kerry Mulligan and Justin Timberlake. Luckily, it was a round table, but he said I literally had to get up mid answer and walk out. Is that is that a normal thing? You can't. Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah. That happens all the time. It's a scheduling thing, I guess. It's a, yeah. everybody's quadruple, you know, booked. Yeah. Like someone I know sitting next to me. Yeah, I'm always sorry, Stevie. Yeah, I'm all, I'm I'm always here. I'm always there. I'm always everywhere. Uh, interesting enough, uh, I want to clarify. We we said last week, didn't we, that Kermode, Mister the Doctor, Good Doctor Mark Kermode, threw a shoe at a film in Cannes. But he clarified on Twitter that it wasn't. He didn't throw a shoe. He he was thrown out for speaking bad French. Is this right, Ali? Is this roughly? Yeah, I think he actually tweeted the words he said, which was, this film is le big merde, or something along those yeah. lines. This was Lars von Trier's The Idiots, wasn't it? I believe He'll so. He'll probably correct us in that as well. I wouldn't even mention the name. It was a film, and he mentioned the word merde, 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 merde. Yeah, he was thrown out. And he was chucked okay. out. This, may, this story may be conflated with the story of uh, director Nanny Moretti, who threw his shoe at someone at the uh, London Film Festival once. Uh, oh, is that what it was? Okay. 
all shoe related stories. Uh, at Dweeksy gets to the, the heart of the matter. This is a this is the question. What's the greatest thing you've eaten during your stay in Cannes? I eat very well here. So I, I don't know if I know you guys just like eat on the run and stuff. So mm. I've been really lucky that I've had uh, a meal, a seven course meal. What were? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give. Well, actually, should I give the name of the brand that invited me? Or is yeah, that go for it. Yeah, Electrolux. Seven course meal. These are Michelin starred uh, chefs, two yeah? Two star Michelin brothers who totally cooked this. I mean, it was four hours. It was storming uh, that day, and I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to watch any films because this is just going to happen. Did you, did, you, did you order it totally cooked? Excuse me? Did they ask <laughs> medium rare or totally? Yeah, I'm like, Do you, can I eat this on the side, please? No, it was the most amazing meal that I may have had in France. So Right. Well, I had a McDonald's the other day. Uh, they have a machine down there where you can actually... I, I, I wasn't going to have McDonald's, but I walked past. They have a machine where you can order outside the McDonald's. You don't have to go in. You can actually type on the machine what you want, and they bring it to you. And uh, I thought this was the best thing I'd ever seen, so I had a hamburger. That's so cool. I want to go and check You it should out. Go, absolutely go after this. Um, at Super Lars, <laughs> who may actually or may or may not be Lars von Trier, says, Is Cannes a bit boring this year, as loonies like Lars von Trier are not there? Demo, you know Lars. Um, yeah, the, well, actually, no, there are, there are some... Um there are right. some loonies. No, there are some mavericks. There's, there's a bit. There's oh, actually, well, we've had hardcore sex, haven't we? We've, there's, we've seen, we've seen quite a bit of male nudity. There's been some uh, ha- uh, hardcore lesbian action. But I'm afraid I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, yeah, it's probably, it's, it's perhaps um, a bit. The response has perhaps been a bit muted. Um, but yeah, we could do with a few more flamboyant personalities. But the films, the films are doing the usual job, I think, aren't they? Yeah, I think everybody's. There's, there's been some interesting like discoveries and some very strange images that <laughs> I may or may not want to erase from my head for the rest of my life. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's no, there's no like Lars von Trier Nazi comment this year. Well, Jodorowsky's been here. He was good. Yeah, he was telling me about how he was sitting on the toilet reading a magazine and he saw a picture of. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio was selling a watch, and he said, he's Gatsby, he sells the watch. And he was very upset about that. <laughs> Gatsby, he sells the watch. Um, and, you know, I, I, he actually said I'm, I was making a digestion, so he, did, he didn't, you know, put it in grotesque terms. Uh, was uh, that in the same interview where he talked about how much he loved Iron Man 3? Oh, no, he just said he'd seen it. Uh, he, kind of, he kind of seemed to suggest he'd li- he liked it. He also talked about mood, which I, it took me a while to figure out was mud. <laughs> mood. He's mood. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, okay, we have another question at Iron Monkey eighty eight, and this is another top one. What's the weather like? Today's been the first really mega hot day of the festival. It's like your bag is filled with an umbrella, a sweater, a t-shirt, a pair of shorts, <laughs> flip flops. I mean, you're just like you're just walking around with a wardrobe. And when the police come after you, it's just so exactly. embarrassing. <laughs> uh, yeah, my favorite thing. It's been quite a wet can, and my favorite thing about this is when the rain comes out, and it, it came out really, really yesterday, and last week was very, very wet is that there are guys who just suddenly come out of the woodwork and they are clutching umbrellas, they sell umbrellas. And even if you're walking down the street with an umbrella aloft over your head, they will still try to sell you an umbrella, which is just amazing. I respect and admire their entrepreneurial skills and they should be on The Apprentice. I quite like the idea of somebody coming up to you in your car and going, would you like a car? There's there's a car over there. If you you drive to that car, oh, how are we going to get it home? Okay, I'll drive the car back to your house. (laughs) At Don underscore Lyle says... Top surprise of the festival and top tip so far. Well, we're now on Thursday of recording yeah. this, so we're only a couple of more uh, days to go. Um, yeah, there's a, there's not that many surprises to go, I don't think. Um, there's the new... I've heard good things about the Jim Jarmusch film, but I'm not quite sure that's what's going, what's going to be sort of upsetting the um, results so far. But as I understand it, I think the um, Abdul Kashish film, um, which I'm just going to 
attempt the title of because I keep forgetting it. It used to be called Blue is the Warmest Colour. Can you help me with this one, Stevie? What is it? Uh, La vie d'Adèle, chapter one, une et deux, uh, which that is the film. French to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's that seems to, that's the critics' front runner because we should never forget that the jury's decision is completely separate. Nine different people, nothing to do with critics. They don't really have the same conversations, and they just certainly don't have the same snobbery. So that's a three-hour. Uh, yes, it's it's, the, it's a coming-of-age story involving a young young girl with her first uh, same-sex relationship. And it was say. all the buzz this morning. I showed up to the Nebraska screening, and I was like, "Oh, it's okay. I've seen all the films. I'm up to date." And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about this film, and I was like, "What? Wait, there's a lesbian movie here. Wait, it's about what?" And then so. Everybody was talking about it, and so now I have to go and watch this three-hour like yeah. uh, film. But you know, it's gonna happen. I mean, this is these are the surprises of Cannes. The other one is the um, Paolo Sorrentino film, La Grande Belleza, which everyone is saying is the. Have uh, you seen it yet? No, I'm seeing it tomorrow. Awesome, awesome, awesome! I saw your tweets on the about it, it's a uh, laser cat you, loves yeah. it. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 the uh, it's La Dolce Vita, isn't it? The, it is it is a it is a version of La Dolce Vita. It's this man who lives in Rome and just lives life to the fullest he goes to party at night and he doesn't come home until the sun comes up so that's his life and within this like existence he's starting to realize maybe there should be more somewhere in there but let's party you know so it's kind of like that's the whole thing and it just it's two and a half hours of this visual feast i mean i've never there's stuff in there that i'm just i just want to live this person i want to like a minute of what he experiences in this film it's so beautiful and cool and it's Dolce Vita I don't know and come with me after the podcast to McDonald's and we'll order a couple of burgers using the, the automated machine there you go done sorted uh, okay let's talk about more movies later on but first we have an interview coming up uh, Nicholas Winding Refn and Ryan Gosling launched Drive upon an unsuspecting world here just two years ago Can 2011 was also where they decided to continue their collaboration with Only God Forgives Luke Evans was attached to star and he dropped out and basically Nicholas Winding Refn uh, recruited to Ryan Gosling. Uh, it's an ultra-violent revenge thriller come nightmare, come headfuck movie set in Thailand. The film has divided critics right down the middle, just like the scientist who discovers Damien Thorne's true identity in Damien Omen 2. And Ali went along this week to talk to NWR and KST. That's his leading lady, Kristen Scott Thomas. My first question for you is, do you want to fight? I'm ready for anything. And the, uh, the whole approach of that line when Ryan says you want to fight came from this whole idea I had about a man who believes he's God versus a man who wants to fight him but when you actually come to the confrontation what do you say other than you want to fight? I was wondering whether you've been enjoying how Only God Forgives has divided critics because it's for me either been five stars or I didn't like it at all. There's a great pleasure in dividing people's opinions because you know you've struck a nerve. That's a very personal, pleasurable thing because you want people to react to what you do. You want to have a commitment, you want to have penetration, you want to have violation, you want to touch people, you want them to love you and you hate you and devour you and praise you because then you know that I feel I took their time and I gave them something in return. And that's what art is about. It's about experiencing and taking that experience with you. But the only way to take it with you is if you think about it. And you can only think about it if it violates you. But it's all in the mind of being positive. Art plants thoughts 
art inspires, art creates, and that's the power of it. How grateful are you that Luke Evans dropped out? I can't say enough. Thank you, God, for him dropping out because it continued what Ryan and I wanted to do. And I will one day return to favor God. Is it frustrating for you that a lot of people are going to think of Only God Forgives as drive two? I can't change what people will think, but I can certainly affect what they're going to get. And um, at the same time, there's a sense of sadness because now, going from Valhalla Rising to Drive to Only God Forgives, that way of filmmaking I'm now saying goodbye to because next I would like to try something different. What was the first thing you did when you first thought of Kristen as this role of Crystal? When you first thought of her, did you just go, I've got to get her? When I met with her in Paris, I very quickly realized I needed to get this woman because her bitch switch was so easy to turn on and she needed a release. You got the impression she was waiting for a script like this to come along? I don't know if she was waiting for it, but she certainly relished in it. And she wanted to go all the way. And I find that very brave. And finally, about the music. For me, it's one of the best things in the film. What was your first reaction to that when you first heard the, first heard the complete score? Well, um, the way that I work with Cliff is at a very early stage. Uh, even from script, we would talk about what kind of music could be interesting and um, the whole karaoke world and, um, and, you know, because I experienced the karaoke world in Asia in a way that I'd never thought that it was almost like a religious thing for people in Thailand to do. So Cliff would come up with uh, suggestions of Thai music that I should try to listen to because he had a great knowledge of Isan music, which is a kind of a music style in Thailand. So it's a very much a very on collaboration between myself and Cliff and I'm, you know, the guy's the best. You say some amazing things, like yeah. things that I can't believe I'm hearing. No, 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 I can't believe I say them either. How many takes did it take oh, to lots, deliver those lines? Lots. Because it was it was late at night, I was tired, and the words really just stuck in my, th you know, there were, and even now I can't really bring myself to, and so don't try and make me say it. And um, somebody asked me for a translation the other day, and I just nearly fainted. <laughs> I can't say that. You need a dictionary of no. some sort. Yeah. You've said that you don't like watching violent films. Yeah. What was it like watching the first cut of this in its entirety? Was um, it behind it was, fingers? Uh, yeah, behind fingers at 11 o'clock in the morning in Soho screening room with four other girls all squealing. Um, it was quite something. But then it stays with you and it, because it's also incredibly frightening. It's a very, very scary film. Not The violence is sort of shocking and awful and, and horrible, so it presses one button. But there's another side to it, which is psychologically really scary. It's like being in a nightmare. It's like being in a... It's like being in a nightmare and, and knowing that you've chosen to be there. It's very odd. What were your first words to your agent when they sent you this script for the first time? You, you've got the wrong... I said, you've sent this, this script to the wrong person. Please, you know... <laughs> got quite shirty about it, actually. And then they said, no, no, they really do want you. <laughs> oh, I'll have a look at it then. You've been described by... The character's been described by uh, Nicholas as Lady Macbeth crossed with Donatella Versace. I was curious whether you got to put in your own input to what 
you were wearing? I didn't know where to begin with that character because it's something I'm really unfamiliar with, you know, the underworld and um, drug trafficking. Don't know much about it. So, you know, you need a kind of way in. And I'd done a few weeks before, a few months before I did the shoot, I'd done a, a photo shoot for a fashion magazine where I was dressed up as, uh, disguised as, as different people, a man, Donatella Versace, uh, a pineapple, anyway, lots of things. And um, I showed them his pictures because what I found in dressing like, in that way was that people's reaction to me was completely different from how they react to me as I am normally. And I found it very, very, very scary. And the thought that a woman can actually make a conscious decision, so yeah, my hair's gonna, I can have her hair extensions, and they're gonna be really, really blonde, and my nails are gonna be out here, and I'm gonna have orange tan, and I'm gonna have massive breast implants. It's a, it's a choice, and it's a decision. And it's like being at war, it's like a sort of act of war. I found it extraordinary, really, really extraordinary. Okay, we're dispensing with the movie news section now to wrap up this wonderful festival. So, essentially, how has it been? What have been the standout movies and the standout experiences? Stevie, let's start with you. For you, the best movie. Not necessarily what's going to win the Palme d'Or. We'll come to that in a second. But the best movie for you. I have to say that every time I think that I've seen the best film for my festival, I come, I go into another film and I'm like, wait, oh, that's really good now. So It's been a good year, hasn't it's it? It's been a surprisingly good year because normally it, it's not. And so... The Passé was originally the, my favorite, uh, and then and then Lauren Davis happened, and then you know all these other. But last, yesterday I had a double whammy of the Sorrentino film and also the Robert Redford movie, and mm. I was like, "What's happening here?" Because these are really great films, and I'm very happy that I'm experiencing it. Could you tell me a little bit about the? Is it, it's all is lost, isn't it? All, all is lost. Yeah. Yes. Now, from what I've heard, it's without words. Is that right? No, that's not true. Um, but it might as well be. Uh, it starts off with a small, very small voiceover from Redford, and then the next hour and a half uh, is essentially this sailor. This he's an old man. It's a, the old man versus the sea, as I dubbed it, and uh, he's on a boat on a, on a solo cruise, possibly around the world. We don't we don't really know. And he runs into difficulty right from the off, and uh, essentially he's trying to keep his boat afloat, and everything's conspiring against him. And is- he doesn't speak. He, I think he says maybe. Ten more words throughout the film. There's one. There's one swear word, and then he. I uh, think that's it. Just, he, he gets on the radio it. at one point. And he says the name of his boat repeatedly. Right. This is an SOS from the Virginia Gene. He says that about three times, and then there's one swear word, and that is he yes. says help. Does he encounter a giant tiger or a? This is quite far from life of pie. This is not about philosophical musings or existentialism this is literally a survival tale it's it is trying it, to stay alive. it plays out like what would happen if a man is out in the middle of the ocean and he's got and things are just working against him and it's just it's just process it's about survival mm-hmm. and it's about how you kind of would survive that mm-hmm. and this is directed by jc chander who did margical yeah and it's fantastic it's a complete 180 degree shift from uh margical for him i think it establishes this guy as, as a real deal one yeah, to watch he's, he's a proper proper filmmaker it's fantastic and, and the fact is, Margin Call is all about dialogue, and here we have a movie that has no dialogue, and Absolutely. so this is yeah. genius on his part. What do you think about uh, Redford's performance in this, TV? Because I got into an argument on Twitter with a guy from HitFix, uh, Gregory Elwood from HitFix. Not an argument, really, more of a disagreement, uh, where he was basically saying, oh, it's a good performance, but it, it won't be 
remembered come awards awards time. And I completely disagree. I can kind of see what he was talking about because it's, it's a performance devoid of histrionics. There's no, woe is me, where are my family, I'm doing this, you know, why God moments. Redford completely lives his role for me. But well, I mean, what's fascinating is you're watching a man who's in the age of Robert Redford. So yep. 76. Yep. Um, so obviously what's happening is every single action is done by a man who's lived a life. And so every so it's so that opening scene when the boat, you know, has that hole and the water's coming in, he doesn't like freak out and do everything. You know, he just takes a breath mm. and then he just kind of like slowly figures out what he should do. He susses the problem and he just kind of like works through it. And to me that establishes the rest of the film. This is a man that's just going to like try to, you know, live yeah. in, in, a, in a situation that's like totally working against him. Yeah. And it's, it's, awesome to watch because you just you don't need to have drama you know it's it's this it's all there it's just it's just a man just trying to like exist in this like horrible horrible situation because it was me i'd be like screaming the whole way through (laughs) or just dive in the water and just be like it's not gonna happen bye i'm just gonna die sharks yeah sharks eat me (laughs) yeah i wouldn't last five minutes I can't even swim. Why? Are, imagine, we wouldn't even go imagine. on this boat. No, right? I wouldn't go on the yeah, boat. I'm like, can, can we find one that's docked? And can <laughs> I, I have I, a meal here? I don't even like docked boats. Oh, okay. they scare the, the crap out of me. No, I don't think I'd, I'd be doing that one. But yeah, that's 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 a great one. That's is that my favorite movie of the festival? I mean, I've I haven't seen a lot out here uh, because I'm doing video blog episodes all the time. But uh, I loved Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I loved uh, All Is Lost. Uh, I haven't seen a large deal beyond that. Uh, what about you guys? What have you? Um, well, I'm on a bit of a non-narrative kick with this festival, so I really loved uh, Only God Forgives um, for its kind of uh, sort of stylized nature and uh, completely it's sort of irreversible style structure because it is it's actually giving away a story in reverse. Um, it tells you it gives it tells you just kind of the starting point at the end of the movie. Uh, and I also liked Claire Denis' Bastards very much. That's uh, a completely hardcore movie. I don't know, not hardcore porn, but hardcore um, avant-garde in the sense that uh, it takes a full hour before you get a handle on what's actually happening. And I spoke to Claire Denis yesterday, and she said, basically, you don't need cement in a wall to make it stand up. And I think she's taken out all the filling and just created this incredible... It looks amazing. It's her first digital movie. Um, and it's about uh, a guy who sort of is uncovering some family secrets, and we only ever know what he knows. Uh, and at the end, there's a very, very disturbing scene, which, like Only God Forgives, um, has some very incongruous music and some very disturbing images in a very haunting film. Ali? I haven't seen enough to really comment, but fortunately the ones I have been lucky enough to see have been the ones that people have been talking about in terms of the front runners or the ones that people have been talking about in terms of looking forward to see them. So the Coen brothers, I didn't get to see Nebraska, but hopefully maybe on the uh, top up ones over the weekend. Uh, uh, But Only God Forgives, just to talk a little bit more about that, wasn't necessarily something I was looking forward to in terms of, I can't wait for a nice bit of ultraviolence. Uh, and I'd been warned that it was kind of out there, which is a, a vague uh, term, but I'll stick with it. But it got me. It kind of hypnotized me. Uh, I didn't realize that it was going to get me, but then I suddenly found myself really entranced by it. It's very slow at times. It really takes its time. And the violence is unflinching and excruciating in, in its own way. The music is what I want to talk about most. If there's two films that have made me want to go and buy them, music straight away and no baz it doesn't include the great gatsby it's only god forgives and inside lewin davis both have soundtracks where you go wow that was worth the price of admission just Mm. to hear that with the big speakers on the big screen really it's entrancing i I always forget the name of the um cliff martinez is the guy who did uh nicholas's film cliff martinez you say he did drive as well the electronic pounding scores uh, the the electronic pounding score to be uh, drive 
with the uh, uh, 80s electro music and yeah. whatever pulsing. To be fair, uh, um, this has been a good festival for soundtracks as well. It's a really good soundtrack in Nebraska. Uh, All is Lost has a very, very lush score. Uh, Nebraska was a bit repetitive, really though, I found. That I was really the only thing I didn't it. like it. There. I really liked that. I thought it was one of, one of my favourite things about the movie. Uh, but we'll perhaps get on to that later on. Um, so, you know, we've all done interviews here as well. Oh, yes. uh, what what's our favorite interview experience? What's been what's been the best for us? I had a really good one with Michael Douglas, um, only because uh, he talked about how this film um, kind of saved him. It was kind of you know I, I don't want to dramatize the situation, but I said, well, you did have a cancer situation, and and did this film kind of distract you from from things? Well, which film? Just to oh, uh, behind the candelabra. Yes, the one where he plays Liberace. And so, um, you know, and, and after t- describing how this film helped him out and stuff, I said, well, this walking up the red carpet is going to be really interesting for you because obviously you have all these emotions going on. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to be crying the whole way through the film. And I'm like, okay. So I thought it was really nice to, to have a guy just kind of, this is Michael Douglas' Wall Street man, just saying he's going to be like crying all night. So Now there's a school of thought that Liberace was gay. D- I don't d- think so. Does the I, film think address that? I think that's really homophobic, and you know, I just you know, just it's we'll never know. We'll never know. We will never know. Kind of, I think they've left it kind of a bit ambiguous, haven't they? I'm not sure. Yeah, this film is—you can't tell when you watch this film, and guys are kissing, and Matt Damon's walking out naked and stuff. Eh, I don't think so. Do you see his green zone? Did I see what? Matt Damon. Do you see his green zone? His green zone? No, yeah. we didn't. We saw the uh, what? What would you call the back area with the bikini wax uh, uh, imprinted on his? Bum? I believe that's the the born we saw his ultimate bum. <laughs> <laughs> ultimate the bum. Ultimate ultimate bum. Nice. <laughs> nice. Supreme RC. <laughs> oh, what's so hard about this is I'm laughing, but I'm sure, I'm sure there are people listening to this going. Oh, what God. what is happening? That's the last Emperor podcast I ever listened to. Ali, what's your favorite interview experience? My favorite interview experience is probably Jennifer Lawrence, if only because she said these words. And I, I don't want to give much. I don't want to give too much away because I hope to write up a piece with this, essentially off the back of this totally beautiful, insane interview. But at the end of it, Jennifer Lawrence said, "I'm so sorry for talking so quickly and so weirdly. It must have sounded like I was on crack. So <laughs> I, I'm sorry." Uh, but anyway, yes, that was for The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. She was incredibly frank. She talked about how she enjoyed flipping the bird to the photographers. Well, I say enjoyed um, at the Oscars. You know that image where she just turned to the assembled press and just dropped the big middle finger at them and then realised immediately, oh, ye gods, what have I done? And then went back to her manager and went, oh, no, 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 no. And then after about an hour, two hours, she realised it's probably the best thing she's ever done in her life. Her quotes, not mine. Mm. Uh, Damon, what about you? Well, I was very taken uh, with Robin Wright, who's one of my favourite actresses. Uh, but I think the um, I think the, the, the gift that this festival gave the me, gift. the gift of this festival, was a um, a, a lucid interview with the Coen Brothers, who are usually not very um, forthcoming and not very um, they're not likely to clarify their movies. But they did this time. They talked, for, you know, they, they did discuss inside doing Davis in, in a lot of detail, um, which I wasn't expecting. And uh, yeah, they were very good natured about it too. I also, I also saw, as you know, I also looked deep into Justin Timberlake's eyes. <laughs> and what did it say back to you? Contact lenses. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I thought they were too, I'm going to have you naked by the end of the <laughs> exactly. interview. But, uh, no, they just look like contact lenses. But, I'm, but they, who knows? Who knows? He's, quite, he's a very handsome man, isn't he? Yes. 
I'm obviously not I saying they are contact. Sure. For, legal, for legal reasons, I'm not actually saying they are contact lenses. Yeah, absolutely. But they, they have the, the, the unreal quality of contact lenses. Uh, I, I, had, I had good fun with uh, uh, Emma Watson. We had a, you know, where I accidentally ruined the secret of Santa for her. That was, that was quite fun. It's been good. Everyone's been, everyone's been fine. It's all been good. People who've been watching the video blog zones may have noticed in the third episode that both Marion Cotillard and Clive Owen were melting because I did the, I don't know about you guys, but I've been having video interviews where people have been locked in these, you know, little booths um, when they're doing the video interviews and they're just sweating and they're so hot and upset. So apologies if anybody saw a bead of sweat drip down the beautiful Marion's face. That was not because she was talking to me and I was asking bad questions, I promise. Uh, but can we talk about uh, Lewin Davis? I don't, we yeah. did that on the last podcast, did we? No, we didn't. Um, I love that film. Uh, I, I think it's, it's both enjoyable and funny and approachable, but also has that kind of Cohen stubbornness that, doesn't, that requires repeat viewings. And that's kind of interesting because the Coens don't understand why everybody likes this film so much because they don't think it's warm. They don't think it's particularly funny. They think it's actually quite a dark drama with a sort of um, melancholy sort of sheen to it because it's set in winter. It's about a guy who's not particularly nice. And the music's all sort of quite sort of woe is me forlorn. So they, they're yeah, kind of... I don't get the warm thing from this movie. People are going, oh, it's a very warm film. I don't get that at all. Did I say warm? No, you didn't. But I've seen a lot of people going. The, the, uh, the same journalist who was in the car with me on the way to the Hotel de Cap the other day described it as a, a Coen Brothers movie with a heart of gold. I'm not so sure there's a heart Wait, of gold. where was that? Yeah, I don't... Which I think film you saw, they I watching? think you saw the wrong film. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it's got a heart, but it ain't gold. I'm not quite sure what color it is, but you no, know, I think you were sort of alluding to that that, it, that it's it, there is a kind of feel good quality to it, but but it's kind of mysterious as to where it comes from because they didn't put it there and they don't they're not quite so sure they're, they're happy to it's take the it. Music, you put in a cat and everything, yeah. and immediately everybody's like, it's got a cat. It's got an awesome cat. It's got it's got fantastic music. Oscar Isaac is is brilliant and he's, sing, he's singing live. Have, do you know that on the day of the premiere um, when they introduced all the, the cast? So JT Justin got like. <laughs> JT, uh, he got on stage and everybody gave him the biggest claps. But when the movie ended, Oscar's claps went crazy, and 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 you can just tell the whole room discovered him at the same like in this one moment. And now he's a bit of a star because I was at the Hotel de Cap doing interviews, and I was I saw him walking down like the path, and I was with some other friends, and I'm like, oh my god, that's Oscar Isaac, and we like totally were like running towards him like schoolgirls, like just super excited that he was like there. <laughs> And I'm not going to do that for JT. It's so weird because he's been knocking on the door for a while, hasn't he? Yeah. He plays Lewin Davis, just to clear things yes. up. He is the actually quite unlovable, twatty, sofa-surfing, womanizing, but not really, wannabe folk star um, who leads the the entirety of this film. Like, he is the film. If you're expecting a lot of JT and Carrie Mulligan, you're not going to get that. It's him, him and a cat. He's in every scene. He's in every single scene. Um, you may have seen Oscar Isaac. He's he's pulled bad guy duties in, in Robin Hood, Sucker Punch as well. He was a bad guy in that. He Drive. Was, he was in Drive, of course. Yes, as Carrie Mulligan's uh, husband and Jailbird uh, husband. Jailbird husband. And um, most recently, he was the the sort of black ops agent who Jeremy Renner meets in The Bourne Legacy who was way more interesting in five minutes of screen time than Jeremy Renner was, but then it gets blown up very, very early on. But I, I'm glad to see that things are, are hopefully going to work out for him now. But uh, yeah, I thought I thought that movie was fantastic. Uh, but 
you know, it's, it's, it's this thing about Cam because of the way it's structured, it seems like almost every time you, a new movie debuts, it becomes the Palm Door front runner. It's a bit of a new toy hours. situation. Yeah. Everybody kind of look, look, bright lights, and everybody gets really excited. Everyone yeah. tweets, talks, and buzzes about it. And then the next morning at eight thirty, if the next film is brilliant, then we're all talking about that too. So <laughs> I think the Kashish just comes with some heavyweight buzz because he's. I think it's like I could be wrong, but it's, I think it's his third sort of feature. But it's, th- it's certainly his third feature on the on the circuit. He had. Uh, was it Couscous, Grain and the Mullet, whatever the first one was, and then, um, oh God, the Ven- um, Black Venus, I think was the second one, which was in Venice, so so the first one was a big smash hit, Venice wasn't quite the big hit, but he's kind of teed up for a big festival win of some sort, he's certainly been put in a good slot by the festival to, to stir things up. Uh, so what do you think is going to win the Palm Tour? Uh, yeah, this question Ali is probably one you and I should stay out of uh, but Damo Stevie what do you think is going to lift the prize come Sunday I, st- I still think the past is in with a chance because it's you know I think I think the Kashish film I mean I don't know so do, um, sorry Steven Spielberg might be a little it might be a bit awkward for him to put his name for a, to a film with 20 minutes of lesbian sex in the middle of it <laughs> I'm, sure it, it I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it stands to win something um, or maybe he could recut the terminal to yes. reflect that <laughs> Uh, and the grand, so there might be actually. Also, actually, let's not forget the uh, the Asian film. So um, there was a lot of love for the Coriander, like Father, Light Son, and the Zhejiangki. So I mean, as you say, new toy, new toy syndrome. So a lot of those films have been sort of slightly it, forgotten. It does seem that the past uh, is the everybody still refers back to it. It's like, oh, I also like the past, you know. And so if that's the kind of general consensus, maybe that's going to be the film that's going to win the Palme d'Or. But and it's, uh, it's also a kind of, what's the word, um, it seems to be this sort of the set text for, for, for this year, it's, which is about discovering through storytelling, which has not, not really been the case before. You know, everything's been, been plain narrative, but this has been very much a year when you find things out as you're going. You, don't, you only know as much as the characters. And what about, uh, never mind best film or best interview what's been your stand-up moment so far from the festival it could be an experience could be meeting someone what's what's okay you're gonna laugh ali you were sitting right in my eye view during my keanu reeves uh uh press conference oh, you and moderated i, was, it, I you moderated this and i was nervous as fuck but like stevie you were great <laughs> shut up thank you my friend but i was staring at you and the whole time i'm just like ali asked a question ali asked a question ali asked a question. and you walked out midway through and i was just like oh my busted balls i was like mother effer He's leaving, and he's not giving me a good question in the process. And you've been busted, my friend. You walked out halfway through. And and I was like, What's up with that? Damn. I had to go to a screening for you with blood Die ties. Ah, you. All right. So good. that was a highlight. <laughs> because you, you started like twenty minutes late, and I was sitting there going, "I've got to go. I've just got to go." He didn't show up. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't say these things. Certain <laughs> things happen where scheduling. It, yes, we ran a little bit late. It was. What? It was quite a strange photo call afterwards because this is Keanu Reeves. Who's was uh, it? Just Stevie. Yeah, we just <laughs> everybody take a photo of me. What? Why? Well, oh, uh, him as well, really. Man of Tai Chi is Keanu Reeves' directorial debut. It sees him making a Chinese-American co-production martial arts movie set in contemporary China, where he has cast his Matrix martial arts guru Tiger Chen as the lead, and he is the bado. Uh, it's it's. You can elaborate more on the plot, but it's just interesting to see that this is the movie that's brought Keanu Reeves behind the camera. Obviously, recently he did Side by Side, which was that movie where he interviewed Martin Scorsese and a bunch of other directorial bigwigs and other cinema lovers about the influx of digital into the cinematic landscape. And I was quite curious about this movie. The fight scenes that I saw when Stevie was hosting his press conference were really impressive. There was a bit I really enjoyed where 
we see this fight scene where Tiger Chen is, is fighting this other guy in this grey matrix-like box room. He's got his tie on, and the guy fighting him pulls his tie, and then he just spins like a top in the air. It just kind of flits around maybe four or five times. Anyway, massive fight scene. It ends with Tiger Chen throwing the guy just headfirst into a wall. And then, deadpan as you like, Keanu Reeves goes, This is a kung fu movie, by the way. I was the only one who wanted to laugh. I was just going, good one. Okay. Yeah. Next. Um, yeah, so he's in town. But the photo call was weird because it was just Keanu pulling weird, like, kung fu, like, poses. But he's just by himself, by the beach. No one else was there. It was just him going, where were you? Ugh. I left by then. I just, you know, I'm like, I did my moderation. I'm out of here. Mama had to go eat or something. I don't know. <laughs> Another seven courses you, waiting for Yeah, you. exactly. Yeah. You kung fu traitor. I know. No, oh, but it was really interesting because, you know, I I have never officially moderated anything on that level. And so really? I've moderated, but not, I mean, it, I'll tell you about that behind. Anyway, so. Uh, behind the candelabra? Behind the candelabra. <laughs> <laughs> Behind my cape. Um, no, but then uh, it was just a little bit stressful for me because I wasn't sure. Uh, There's a lot of people watching this this uh, this yeah. moderation, and so I was. There's a lot of high level folks that I kind of had to appease. So I uh, I moderated once a press conference in Cannes a few years ago with uh, Brett Ratner and Quincy Jones for a movie that never got made. It was for a movie called Carnival 3D, and essentially, I think. It was just an excuse for Brett Ratner to go to Brazil, uh, and uh, it was about it was, it's going to be about the uh, the carnival in Rio, and it was going to be in three D, in case you can't tell. And I uh, I fell over in front of the world's press, what? which was which was brilliant. I, I stood up at one point to give the microphone to someone in the crowd, and then when I went back to my seat, I didn't see the step, and I fell off <laughs> fell over on my arse, nearly onto Quincy Jones. In fact, and uh, but luckily only about thirty or forty of the crowd noticed, so it wasn't too bad, and it was caught in camera. As well, you Jennifer Lawrence in front of Quincy Jones. I did, yeah. Can yeah. we gif that? Can him. we find that image and then like gif it as you know? Never like, ever. No, I'm on. sure it's been. I'm sure it's been crushed. It's been pulped. The whole thing's been deleted. I, I went over the footage with a giant magnet. It's, it's never going to happen again. Why am I talking about it now? This is this is disgraceful. Uh, Ali, what was your big uh, big moment of the festival? I'm, well, the challenge oh. now is for you to create a legendary jazz or pop album in front of Jennifer Lawrence and do a Quincy Jones. That would be the only sensible thing to do. <laughs> what was my favorite moment? My favorite moment could be having a horrific bout of sunstroke today. That was good. Enjoyed that a lot. That did cripple you for a little bit, didn't you? Uh, or it could be waiting for an hour and 10 minutes in the rain for a movie that I ended up seeing the day after. Um, it wasn't that long a queue. It's just that we eventually didn't get in that time. Uh, what would be my favourite moment at Cannes so far? Oh, actually, it would be it would be somehow miraculously um, managing to be the last person let into Only God Forgives because that's one hell of a feeling when you get into the Grand Palace Lumiere and you are the only you are the last person. The person behind you is like. <gasps> Uh, Damo, what about you? I, I did a quite a fun Q and A with um, Rory Robinson and Olivia Williams at the UK uh, Pavilion. It's for, for the last days of Mars. Yes, yeah. and Olivia was in, hilariously indiscreet, uh, and uh, it will never be heard anywhere. It wasn't recorded, so everybody missed it, and it was a very special moment. It was it was it was, it was very entertaining, very funny, lots of um, candid stories, shall we say? <laughs> she is she is amazing. We interviewed her as well, so that that footage. That video footage will be up on the Empire website very, very soon. Interviews with both Roy Robinson and Olivia Williams for Last Days of Mars, which is a decent space horror flick that actually turns out to be a bit of a zombies in space movie, but it's still got some really, really good moments. Uh, and I was in the director's fortnight, wasn't it, Damon? Yeah. It was indeed. Uh, my moment of the festival was probably watching Jaws 
on the beach with Richard Dreyfuss in attendance. He introduced a movie, slightly disappointed that Spielberg didn't hightail it over from the uh, the Grand Theatre Lumiere to introduce it. Come on, Steve, you could have you could have done it honestly. But uh, yeah, it was still pretty cool to have Matt Hooper introduce the movie. That was that was awesome. And then the fireworks went off. The fireworks were amazing. I took a photograph on my iPhone, which was pretty incredible, where I was planning on taking a photograph just because it was so amazing of that some bad hat Harry. And as I was doing it, fireworks were going off in the background. So it was this, just the most amazingly bad timing. But it's just amazingly, look, we're in can, 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 can. Massive, huge fireworks behind a man in his swimming trunks wearing a terrible hat. The other thing is, Louise was telling me that that poor old Richard Dreyfus during your interview was asking um, whether we knew which yacht was Steven Spielberg's. If you think about that, that's really sad because that, that means that he's not been invited onto the yacht by his old pal. This, you know, this is a guy who used to be Steven Spielberg's alter ego. So that genuinely made me really sad. <laughs> Ian Freer emerges with samurai sword. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Uh, another kind of experience was a year ago, I interviewed uh, Alec Baldwin here for Rise of the Guardians. And as the interview ended, he ran out the door because he had to go and film something. And what he was filming was a documentary with his mate, James Toback, in Cannes about the film industry. The film is now called Seduced and Abandoned. It is playing here out of competition. And I went and spoke to both Alec Baldwin and James Toback earlier in the week. Here's the interview. I'm Alec Baldwin here with Empire Magazine. My guest <laughs> is James Tobin. This is James Tobin. I'll hold it here. The, I, <laughs> they've already gone rogue. They've gone rogue. <laughs> it's the outsider and the stragglers coming to you live from the Riviera. You don't need me, do you? You can just do this yourself. So I think yeah. you'll be, oh, okay, you do need me. Okay. Um, Alec, I actually interviewed you last year. I was your last interviewer, I think, for Rise of the Guardians, and you raced out the door to go and film this documentary. Uh-huh. Now, one year later... You're back. Was it always a plan? Were you always hoping to come back here and launch the documentary here at Cannes? I don't think that we ever... That would be a good question for Jimmy because I yeah. don't think that we ever had a, any certainty that it would be in Cannes. There were other festivals. We, we, you know, we were open-minded, wouldn't you say? First of all, I didn't know how long it would take to edit. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was timing. When will it be ready and for what? I secretly always hoped it would be Cannes because just hedonistically, it's so much more pleasurable to be here than anywhere else. <laughs> and in addition, I also have a higher regard for it. I have the fondest memories. Um, also, I felt in a strange way, I couldn't imagine another festival not feeling a certain competitive, jealous resentment. Even though there's... Of a, us extolling Cannes. Yes, I mean... I mean <laughs> Coppola has some negative things to say, and it's not yeah. entirely flattering, but it is a celebration of Cannes and its mm. history, among many other things. And I couldn't imagine Sundance, for instance, or Berlin saying, let's do our part to promote Cannes, because after all, we are not even remotely in the same category, and we should just <laughs> genuflect and hope that they can celebrate themselves as much as possible. So it, it really felt as if it belonged here more mm. than other festivals. And of course, putting Thierry Vermeer in the uh, in the film that that must have helped a little bit. Uh, I'm guessing. <coughs> well, actually, well, well, actually, one funny thing you say is when you and this is just my opinion, but I think I do have some ability to kind of read people this way. It may mm. be the only ability I have, and that is that. Uh, Frimo was someone who was not at all self-promoting. He kind of blanched at the idea of being yeah. in the film. He yeah. does not want to be un, uh, uh, unnecessarily 
exploited as the figurehead mm. of the film. He and uh, Jacob, uh, they, they were not out there uh, asking for their close-up. I mean, Frimo <laughs> has been one thing and one thing only. He's been the gracious host who helped to facilitate as much access as was reasonable. Mm -hmm. the, the, the festival is not here uh, to serve our purposes That's so it. when we were here. So there were some things we couldn't do. It was intrusive. But other than that, I mean, Fumo could not have been more generous. Yes, and I, I, I thought um, that, and I, again, as Alex said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way quote him on or even suggest that he ever said anything like it or implied anything like it. But I assumed, correctly or not, that there would be some ambivalence on the part of Thierry Mm. Uh, as to whether or not the movie should be in Cannes, right. and that, and that the and we anticipated that, yeah, and that the idea that it would be read as an act of self-promotion on two levels—one, the festival; two, his appearance in it—would certainly be a subject that would have to occur to him. Whether or not he came down on the side of saying it doesn't matter was, in my mind, an open question that only would be resolved by by submitting it and finding out. And I actually think that the fact that we landed in the slot that we did, which is special screening and in the 60th anniversary theater, which turned out to be perfectly right for mm. the film. It went beautifully. We had phenomenal response. But I think it was the most modest way of showing the movie. And I think that may have been the result of a sense that let's not, let's not pump up our chest too much <laughs> and, and, and I understood that and I think it's probably the better part of Valor to do that in a yeah. situation certainly it's a unique situation yeah. there, there has never been, there will never be again a case like this in which that would even be a, a danger or a possibility mm. um, My can tends to be a masterclass in winging it uh, going from interview to film you know, you're not quite sure what you're doing the next, from one minute to the next was it like that for the film, for, or did you have a, a very firm plan of who you were going to interview, who you were going to speak well, to? Well, we had, I think, we had a we had a plan, and then we had a lot of uh, uh, backup plans. We had people that we we came here to interview people uh, about the, how film, and particularly film finance, has uh, evolved over their careers. People mm -hmm. who are uh, significant players, whether they're producers or writers or directors or actors or uh, studio executives. And then we had, you know, the MacGuffin, so to speak, which was not really a MacGuffin. I mean, we really do want to make a film together. Mm -hmm. But we, but, but that film is by no means, was not ready, for example. Yeah. to. We talked about an idea and we ran around Cannes and the Marche trying to raise money, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, for that, for that film. Um, that... Uh, all of it required some high degree of improvisatory decision making, yeah. but 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 a surprising amount of it was uh, uh, predetermined. It was. We had these set pieces, and then it was almost uh, contrapuntal. We'd have a a, a two-hour talk with uh, Bertolucci in the uh, in the Bertolucci suite in the Carlton. And then we would be running around uh, and talking to foreign sales guys and exploring the representatives from Morocco and Tunisia and Jordan about the possibility of shooting there. That was all not only imp improvisational, it was minute-to-minute -minute discovery. I remember we were kind of peeking in and seeing which places we were welcome at and who was ready to talk at that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that gave it, I think, a terrific sense of adventure. I felt every day 
there are things we're going to do today, and they're set, but every day had an infinite number of other possibilities. Whose boat are we going on? <laughs> what billionaire are we going to speak to? Who's, it, it was all... Yeah. And, and, and also, and th- thankfully there was not a high degree of this also, what people decided they wanted to speak to us that then got cold feet and didn't speak to us. Okay, yeah, we, well, okay well, we didn't, I, didn't, I was hoping you would omit. It, it really doesn't matter who they are, and it doesn't matter, but, but my point is the, the, the people who talk to us, they're people who I think are, uh, uh, the, the, these people fell into two categories, people that were smart mm-hmm. and thoughtful and passionate and were willing to share their experiences about the business, and other people who are self-promoting, self-seeking, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, afraid they're going to be found out at every minute and so forth, who uh, dodged us as if we were uh, exterminators with bug spray in our hands. <laughs> so. And I, didn't, I wasn't putting Len Blavatnik in that category. He was actually ready to do it, and then something intervened, and he couldn't, yeah. didn't do it. But he's actually a rather modest guy. In fact, I think I told you, it turned out that Len Blavatnik actually lived above me for five years, and I didn't even know it, <laughs> in, in my building. And the way I found out really? is that Jose... You went here to ships in the night. You, yeah. The, Jose, the handyman in my building, said to me, you know, there was another movie guy who lived in the building for five years right above you. Very sweet guy, very unassuming. Apparently, he's very wealthy, too. And I said, who's that? And he said, Len Blavatnik, who's... Finances, Harvey wants these companies. Does this and that. I see he was living above me all, and he didn't complain about my music being blasting at four o'clock. I was just going to ask. I mean, you say you, you ran into people who were the other side of the coin. You ran you, you ran into people who are uh, who know the movie business inside out, and then those who may be chancers, so to speak. Did that depress you? That that side of the movie business, people who maybe say, "Oh, we can't uh, make this, this point movie." In my for... life, none of it depresses me. Yeah. You know, for me to come here with Jimmy, people say to me because I'm kind of the uh, the straight man. I come here. <clears throat> and in one component of the film, Jimmy turns to someone like Mark Damon and says, how much money would you give me for a movie with Alec? And Damon basically says, not much. I wouldn't give you very much money. You, we, we, yeah. we understand that. We yeah. know the way the business works. There's a certain kind of thing that, although it is by no means foolproof, there's a certain kind of thing that it's recommended you do if you want to have a strong, virile, enduring career in the movie business. I wasn't willing to do those things. Yeah. And so for me, I ended up where I ended up. I really don't care. You know, like right now, I, I've made peace with that. I work. I do what I do. I did a TV series. I do a movie here and there. I just did a play on Broadway. Whether things go well, whether they don't go well, I don't care. Mm. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm always going to get my chance up at bat, whether I'm playing in the World Series or whether I'm playing AAA, I don't care. And when you come here, you realize that, um, and I really mean this, for me, this comes down to very often movies I made, they weren't the best movies. And I did one of two things. I chased money. Yeah. I was paid a lot of money years ago. Or it was the experience of I wanted to spend time with those people. Yeah. I wanted to, when I did the movie with Anthony Hopkins, when I did The Edge, I wanted to work with Tony Hopkins. It did nothing else matter. And, and to me, all of life is passing time. We're passing time. Yeah. Where could you be right now? We all could be under a coconut tree reading, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, you fill in the blank. You know, <laughs> we could be reading James Joyce under a coconut tree, yeah. what have you. And, and, and my point is, I wanted to spend time with him. Yeah. He intrigues me. I admire him. I think he's funny as hell. I think he's so interesting. I wanted to spend time with him. I don't care whether the subject of the film was, uh, you know, the, the, the pumpkin catapult up in... Uh, Bennington, Vermont, or whatever. It's nicer here than in Bennington. There you go. (laughs) That's it. uh, Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Pleasure.
Okay, time for this week's reviews of movies that are actually out in cinemas in the UK that you can go and see, including The Hangover Part 3 and Epic. For that, we're going to hand you over to our London bureau uh, and Helen O'Hara, Ollie Richards and Phil Descendant. Take it away, guys. All right, and welcome back to London for the Empire podcast. Uh, we're going to go straight into reviews, and we're starting today with The Hangover Part 3, the finale, we are promised, to The Hangover Trilogy, which sees uh, this time Doug, who's played by Justin Bartha, Stu, Ed Helms, and Phil, uh, Bradley Cooper, Oscar nominee now, uh, go on a road trip to help their old mate Alan, played by Zach Galifianakis, because he's off his meds and following the death of his father has gone a bit more doolally than usual. Of course, things don't go quite according to plan, thanks to John Goodman's crime boss, Marshall, and of course, the ever-present bad luck charm, Leslie Chow, played by Ken Young. Um, so, what did we think of this? Ollie? Tell us about it. Uh, it's kind of simultaneously fairly smart and also not at all what you want. Right. Because plot-wise, so it's nothing like the last two. They've, th- they've taken on board that everyone said part two was yeah. just part one again. And so they've changed the story very much and the entire structure is different. But in doing so, they seem to just lost all the comedy. It's not funny. And it's not that there aren't good jokes and there just aren't jokes to land there are so few scenes that seem played for laughter and there are a few the few that are work okay mm. but the rest of it is just this quite convoluted chase slash heist movie yeah which goes all over the place and it's fine but it's just nothing nothing like the first one the first one was so fun because everything was ridiculous uh, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and sillier and sillier and sillier, but all tied together. Second one was just a bit too dark for its own good. Mm. And this one is uh, still quite a lot of the darkness, but none of the silliness. It's very, it's a very weird film. Yeah, it felt like... No, I watched this last night, and it felt like you were supposed to laugh at the mere fact that, that these guys were in these situations. Yes. But the situations themselves were quite twisted sometimes and quite dangerous, and, and therefore it wasn't... Ultimately, I thought that that they they didn't really land as jokes. No, exactly. Well, like there's a moment where someone gets shot and Alan wets himself, and it's supposed to be. I, you can't tell if it's supposed to be funny or not because it's not funny. It's just a bit. It, it's slightly surreal. <laughs> it's not. There aren't funny bits. There are just bits that are odd. Mm. Sometimes they're odd and slightly funny, and you laugh at their oddness. Other times it's just a, that's a bit odd. I had concerns when I saw when I read Todd Phillips saying that actually history would judge had the hangover 2 to be a little bit of an underrated classic yes. at that point i thought okay this franchise has got high on its own supply somewhere on the line yeah it's lost track of any ability to add, sort of be self-conscious or self-aware well it's a it's a, a story that started out with no reason to be a trilogy this is not a film you didn't mm. get to the end of the first hangover and think god i really want to see how this all ties up in a three-story structure <laughs> that's just not what it does it's a great the first one i still think is a terrific comedy but there's no there's nowhere to go after it there's no there's you weren't left with unanswered questions this kind of makes up some questions that it then answers and some of the questions are fairly clever that it makes up that you absolutely never thought about but it just there's no reason for there to be three of them other than lots and lots of money which i'm sure it will still make yes i think it probably will on a personal level i would say there's um very very little in there for women I mean, I don't think there ever has been, but at least the fun- first one was funny, so yeah. it's just for universally funny. Yeah. But th- this one felt really... 
it left quite a bad taste in my mouth at times. And there is a post-credit bit or there's a mid-credit bit. Do mm. stay for that. Which almost made me doubt their promises that it's the last of the three uh, and that there might be more. I, I, I think they're sincere about that. I, I hope. But uh, but yeah, there is there is this bit in the credits and it's just, it's yet another example of the sort of fear of, I don't know, feminization. It's very odd. It's very horrible. Yeah. All the women in the first one, though, were basically either shrill harridans or, oh yeah, and to be honest, I, ex- I expect that from Hollywood. But I, I just felt like this one was was particularly egregious in some way. I can't quite even explain or justify. Um, you know, you've got Melissa McCarthy in there. Yes, I think generally her two, maybe three scenes yeah. are, are probably the funniest things in it. Yeah, she's she, she putting her together with Zach Galifianakis yeah. is is actually a pretty effective. Yeah, definitely thing. works. And, and she's a horrible character in in a, in a strangely lovely way. Yeah, she's kind of she's all her character is almost the same as him, but with cynicism. So yeah. whether he's relentlessly positive, she's exactly the opposite. It's a match made in heaven, really. Anyway, uh, so The Hangover 3 got two stars from us. So a bit of a disappointment, but I'm sure everyone's going to go and see it anyway. Hey-ho. Uh, next up, uh, we have Epic, which is the new animated film uh, from director Chris Wedge. Uh, this one has Amanda Seyfried as MK, who's a young woman who goes to live with her father following her mother's sad death. Uh, her father is obsessed with looking for tiny little leaf people in the forest, Um they do exist. Uh, they include Josh Hutcherson, Colin Farrell, Beyonce and the rest. And they're fighting a war against the evil uh, forces of rot led by Christoph Waltz's Mandrake. Um, so it's kind of a, a tiny little ad- huge adventure. Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? Borrowers meets Avatar meets... Oh, you know what? I'm going to go completely off the grid here because we have two films that are <clears throat> coming out this Friday. Right. One's epic. Yeah. One is a re-release of My Neighbour Totoro. Yeah, 25th anniversary. They're thematically quite similar, so I thought maybe we could talk about them together, which is a little invidious for Epic, I would Ooh. say. Because obviously, <laughs> Totoro is a classic. It's one of Empire's, I think it's Empire's 41st greatest film in world cinema. Um, and it is a masterpiece. But they're both kind of, as I say, they're, they're very similar in terms of, they're about coming-of-age stories for, for young girls. Mm-hmm. In, in Epic's case, it's Amanda Seyfried as a teenager. Both have kind of slightly absent absent parents. Um, one's very much the sort of modern newfangled CG animation in 3D and I think the 3D is reasonably effective in this it is yeah I didn't have any problems with no with Epic it's it's the it's the Blue Sky Studios that brought us Mm -hmm. Ice Age Robots Rio they really kind of know what they're doing and they do it effectively in this film I think they capture the adventuresome nature of this this girl's she's kind of like it's a honey I shrunk the kid scenario She, she, (laughs) she gets really small and joins this kind of the leaf the leaf men's the leaf battle men. I, I have to say um, my big problem with the film was kind of her I think not not that Amanda Seyfried's bad not that the animation's bad but I didn't really need any human characters in this because I actually thought the best things in the film were this this giant war between these tiny little people between the, the forces led by Colin Farrell as, as General Ronin who was, who was actually very cool uh, he's working for Queen uh, Tara played by Beyonce OMG, uh, and and they're fighting against Christoph Waltz's forces. And I actually was I was so into that battle. And there was there were stakes because they they kill somebody early on, and there's you know people getting beaten up right, left, mm. and centre. And you're actually worried that you know bad things might happen, even though this is a cartoon, um, which is which is quite good. And I didn't need you know someone to draw me into the story, which I think is what the, the humans were there for. Uh, whereas in a way, you know, with Todoro, it makes strangely more sense. It makes sense, and I think. 
probably the, the major difference is that Totoro is kind of semi-autobiographical. It's based on Miyazaki. His mum fell ill, mm. and the story takes these two young girls to into the country where they meet this a variety of like house spirits, mm. and then these strange rabbit-like creatures. If you haven't seen it, and you have seen Toy Story three, you'll see Totoro in in a scene in that. Yes. Um, I've got one at home. He's adorable, <laughs> and um, it's just it, it's just this kind of emotional connection which draws you into the story. First of all, then obviously the animation is is much more traditional, yeah. kind of hand drawn style. So, um, so that's probably part of it. This Totoro has much more that feeling of it genuinely feels like it through a child's eyes. Yes, you really feel like everything in that mm. is. Whereas MK and Epic is a cool teen. Mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think yeah. it's a little bit of a you know the adults version of a cool teen. But I mean, having said that, right? Because I, 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 we all love Totoro, and I don't want Epic to completely suffer by comparison. I would say that uh, it's a it's a decent story. This it's well animated. I think it does suffer because it comes after not only Totoro, it comes after Arietti more recently from Miyazaki. It comes after uh, the Princess and the Frog. It comes after, well, I'm afraid Fern Gully. You know, all of which <laughs> kind of if you Outer. if you took elements from all of those, it would kind of add up to this, um, which is a little bit of a shame because I think in itself as its own story it's actually pretty good it's based on a story by William Joyce who's obviously written some great uh, animation uh, inspiring works in the past so I feel like it's decent it's no Totoro though there's not really sort of a glint of daylight in the forest for that kind of fancy tale <laughs> fairy tale is there because you know you could say they're all kind of Alice in Wonderland stories in their, in their own way and they've been repeated labyrinth never ending sure. story the, well yeah but on this scale you know and tiny mm. people in the forest kind of a scale is what I mean yeah. I'm being very specific no I, I think I, look, let's, <laughs> it isn't a fair comparison you know to compare anything against any animation to Totoro yeah. or anything Miyazaki does pretty much yeah. is, is pretty tough but um, Epic Epic does a decent job. Well, uh, Epic got three stars from us, so that is a recommendation. Uh, we did like it, and it'll certainly keep the younger ones amused. I should also say that um, the, the comic relief in that is quite good. Chris O'Died and Aziz and Sari among them. Um, they managed to be comic without resorting to fart jokes. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe for you, but not for the rest of the world. Uh, me- meanwhile, My Neighbor Totoro is a five-star classic. That's not the only Miyazaki film being re-released this week. Grave of the Fireflies um, is also out again. Um, if you thought that Up was, you know, the animated film most likely to make you cry, I have news for you. If you haven't seen Grave of the Fireflies, it is worse than Up for <laughs> tear-jerking. Uh, but not in a, not in a bad way it's the story of two kids in um in war-torn japan in world war ii basically their city is firebombed they lose their parents and they're trying to stay alive in a pretty hostile world and it is it's tough it's tough viewing isn't it it's uh it's it's not the, the comfiest um coziest cartoon it's not for little kids it's the Hiroshima one and more for the under 12s <laughs> <laughs> yes it's pretty bleak i mean you know it's a film about firebombing of Japanese cities yeah. through the eyes of a child again and, and, and near starvation of, of small children and uh, yeah and, exactly and, and as Ollie says he's amazing at, at capturing things through the eyes of, a, of, of children yeah. and, this I, is, and this one if anything feels more autobiographical to me than Totoro it feels just it feels devastating it feels like you're right there and this is what happened to kids in Japan at the time and kids all over the world obviously in World War II uh, so Grave of the Fireflies for some reason we've given that four stars I feel like that must be a clerical error personally and it should have five but hey I won't argue with um, our our colleagues 
Um, also out this week, uh, just a quick mention, there's an, another reissue. It's The King of Marvin Gardens, which is, of course, the Bob Raffleson film with Jack Nicholson, Bruce Dern and Ellen Burstyn in um, Atlantic City. That's a great kind of drama rather than a thriller I think we'd say yeah that got four stars um, also out is a Swedish crime, crime drama Easy Money uh, now this stars Robocop to be Joel Kinnaman and comes from Daniel Espinosa who's, who of course directed Safe House this was made before Safe House we're just getting it quite late uh, that got three stars but it's interesting to see both of them before they become even bigger and also out this week, finally, is Everybody Has a Plan, which is uh, Viggo Mortensen playing twins. He's both a big city doctor and a sort of country yokel. And that's an Argentinian drama from Anna Pitterbrug. So uh, that got three stars as well. Thanks to Helen, Ollie and Phil. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. And that's it from this year's Cannes Film Festival. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be back in Blighty and talking to the likes of M. Night Shyamalan and Gillian Anderson. Until then, it's au revoir from Demo. Ooh. <laughs> it's ooh revoir from Damo. Uh, au revoir from Ali. Au revoir from Stevie. We've, had, we've, we've loved having you on the podcast. Hey. Got to do it when you're over in London sometime. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, you're invited. Okay. Open I'll be there tomorrow then. Anytime. Just wait in the booth for us. <laughs> we'll right, we'll cool. be there eventually. And uh, it's au revoir for me. I'm off to join the queue for the men's lose, but I've only got a blue pass, mind you, so I may be some time. See you next week. <laughs>